Good morning and welcome to Rising. The potato famine was a British-fueled genocide. <laughs> and, Kim, and Kim, you know who agrees with me? President Joe Biden. Okay. Kim is the only one participating in the holiday. Today. Yes. You know what this means? What's that? Mean? I get to pinch you. <laughs> <laughs> These guys didn't wear green. I, know, I totally forgot. Oh my gosh. I should have worn a green tie. I cannot believe you guys. Both Purple, maroon. What in the world is going on here? Too early in the morning to remember oh, anything geez. like that. Oh, jeez. That actually that, is You guys case. owe me a beer, a green one. But no, here, we, we do have Joe Biden. Mr. Biden, a quick word for the BBC. Thank you. The BBC, I'm Irish. <laughs> is he even Irish? Is he actually Irish? He's totally Irish. Okay, just making sure, because sometimes he yeah. tells fibs. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. His, his, fa his father was English, and his, his grandmother once told him, Joe, your father's English, but it's not his fault, and he's not a bad man. <laughs> Well, we have New York Assemblyman Ron Kim, who will join us to discuss the Cuomo brothers' latest updates. And then Lucas Kuntz will discuss how American oil companies could tackle gas prices. But first, President Biden authorized an additional $800 million in new security assistance to Ukraine. Let's watch. The delegation authority under Section 506A1 of the Foreign Assistance Act of 1961, translated into a total of... So this comes after Ukrainian President Zelensky's heartfelt address to Congress and plea for more aid. And while Zelensky won't get a no-fly zone, he will get more money, drones, anti-armor systems, anti-aircraft systems, and small arms, plus plenty of ammunition. This comes as Ukraine and Russia are in negotiations for a peace plan that includes a ceasefire and Russian withdrawal. If Kiev declares neutrality and accepts limits on its armed forces, renounces ambitions to join NATO and gives Russians legal status in Ukraine. Just yesterday, Ukrainian officials accused Russians of an airstrike on a theater where hundreds of displaced people were sheltering. It's unclear how many people died in this attack. Very, very tragic. War is the worst. It's terrible. Absolutely terrible. So it's interesting, um, you know, Zelensky goes, gives this address, says he needs, he wants a no-fly zone. Um, and then he says, okay, if you're not going to give me a no-fly zone, then at least give me some jets. And I don't think we're giving him the jets, or um, we're definitely not giving him the no-fly zone. I don't think we're also giving him the jets. So they're instead giving him a bunch of uh, really anti, so it's a defense yeah. equipment. Mm -hmm. So really they're just giving Ukraine the ability. I mean, they're clearly not, these types of weapons you don't give to somebody you think is going to win. You give them to them to hold off. Yeah. You know, you're fighting, you're, tr you're just trying to keep them at bay a little bit. And maybe that is in order to facilitate more negotiation. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole strategy, right? I mean, it's a defensive, I mean, they're not, there's a small chance of them, of Ukraine triumphing and defeating Russia right quickly, like a very small chance of that. I don't think it's impossible, but it's pretty unlikely. So yeah, they just got to hold out until negotiations. Yeah, and I'll out, talk about this more in my radar. But the, the logistics of the uh, the plane situation are are complicating this. We, you know, we we kind of like to think here in terms of uh, somebody asks for something, they can have it immediately. Same day delivery, like Ukraine has Prime and just all of a sudden a whole <laughs> bunch of fighter jets are going to show up. Right. You, they, don't have, they don't have people who are trained right. to fly American fighter jets. So They're, Americans would have to be flying those which, jets. That's the problem. Which now we're at war with Russia. Right. Okay, so then, this, so then that's why they came up with this, this workaround where they said, okay, well, give us these MiGs because we do have some pilots who are, who are trained how to fly the MiGs. Polish will give us the MiGs. You'll trade American planes to the Polish. Everybody wins. And then they figured, wait a minute, how are we going to get these planes into right. Ukraine? Now, you, 
If you put them on trucks and drive them in, they're just going to get lit up, up yeah. on the ground. <laughs> if you fly them in, now NATO is flying fighter jets right. into Ukraine, and Poland is now a target. Unless you could get Ukrainian pilots out into Poland. The problem is they still would be taking off from from yeah Poland. from Poland. Yep. So it's which a, I mean all of this is absurd. It's a war. Yeah. But what but you know, what has counts agreed on the same as absurd rules. right, right. As, as us via, as now it's actually us doing it rather than someone else is totally absurd. Yeah. And Saki also pointed out yesterday that they that Ukraine has multiple squadrons that are, they're not using, and that almost all of the assaults that. Russia is carrying out are coming from the land, you know, right. firing missiles mostly, right. and you know, cruise missiles, mm-hmm. and, that, and a no-fly zone isn't going to do anything about that. That's true. Yeah. But we'll see how these negotiations go. Um, you know, there's some things that the Russians are asking for that you know could maybe be. I, so they want recognition of Crimea as yeah. Russian. They want recognition Which of is the. Happen. Like, come on, like it's over. Right. It right. should happen. But they're holding. But for whatever reason, the Ukrainians are holding on to that. And Crimea is historically actually Russian. It was given to Crimea. I mean, it was given to Ukraine not actually it's, that long yeah. ago in the all, 50s. All of it's back and forth. Right. The last 150 years. Right. Um, years. But Just like the, so much of Europe. <laughs> yeah. 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 P- particularly that part of Europe. Yeah. And the, the people there in Crimea overwhelmingly want to be with Russia anyway. So it's so that's that's going to be a tough sell. I think in general to get the for Ukraine to say no, no, we're gonna we're gonna continue with. But then again, they've got I a lot of pressure the from the West. That's the easiest one for them to give that up. That is the easiest one. It's to already give up. de facto Russian. Totally yeah. right. But Donbass region is another area they're wanting they're wanting um, in, in the negotiations for them to declare. But I think a lot of this stuff, Russia seems to be throwing out a lot of stuff that is probably negotiable to some degree. Um, and so there, there, I think there is some wiggle room. They're definitely not going to bend on the NATO issue. They're yeah. not bending on that. Right. Well. But Zelensky you, already bent. But yeah, the, yeah so Ukraine has bent. Right, Ukraine is doing <laughs> oh, that. Russia, Russia will not bend yeah. on the NATO yeah. issue. Yeah. So they're He's saying already you gave, have to Zelensky do that. Zelensky already gave in on yeah. that. Yeah, and yeah. Russia's not going to bend on the military capacity of Ukraine. They do not want Ukraine to have some high-powered weapons from the right. West. Right, and it, and it seems like the way that that'll be negotiated is in exchange, Ukraine would get security guarantees from Russia, from NATO, and but from NATO and from. Russia. But the security guarantee from Russia would be we will, we promise not to invade, but the guarantee from NATO would be like we'll we'll defend you in these particular ways, and that's where they're going to have to negotiate because you don't want it to be a NATO type. So Russia doesn't want it to be uh, right. membership in NATO. Right. But they ought, they have allowed the possibility of some type of security cooperation. What a, the way that Finland. But what a sort of irrational or contrary even to the stated goals of Russia to put them in the situation. As a result of this action, Ukraine doesn't okay doesn't get NATO membership, but they weren't really going to get NATO membership probably anyway. Instead, they're going to get a series of greater entanglements and defensive arrangements mm-hmm. with NATO countries. Yes. Not Possibly, yeah. Full, so, so what? what is Russia doing? This is what's going to come of yes, this. He also, Putin also produced a, a sense of Ukrainian nationalism that is much more profound than it was even, yeah. a, mu- even a month yeah. ago. Yes, yeah, Zelensky's a, a saint, his sainthood Right, now. he was at 22% approval rate. Yeah, nobody something. liked him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. the Ukrainians never really trusted their government. In fact, when the That's vaccine... Why Zelensky won. Right, and when there a, was uh, the vaccine rollout, people, and there was a very low uptake in Ukraine, and people were asking why, and then they would do surveys, and they would find out that the Ukrainians just didn't trust their government. That 70-something percent of them were like, we just don't trust these people. So what they tell us to do, we don't really want to do. Well, um, they're not wrong. I don't trust our government. Their, right. gov- their right. government? 
I, I don't know any government. There. I don't trust any <laughs> Their government is very corrupt. They're one of the most corrupt countries in the world, and they have been for a while. They're run by either you know, Russian-backed oligarchs or Western-backed oligarchs. But either way, the people are not running their country. But we're claiming that we're there for democracy. But I don't know how much democracy they have. Well, and that's why Zelensky was able to power through a guy who had absolutely zero political experience. That can happen in democracies, too, though. Right. I mean, yes. (laughs) But they're like, it's a joke, so why don't we just get a comedian for a president? Yeah. Like, you know, imagine if the U.S. did that. (laughs) How strange that would be. Yeah, reality television stars or things. So strange. Okay. Anyway, yesterday we discussed the media being overexcited about the prospect of war. According to a Pew poll shown on MSNBC, 35% of Americans support taking military action even if it risks nuclear conflict, while an overwhelming majority supports sanctions and admitting refugees. So I talked to Congressman Ro Khanna about Zelensky and Biden's negotiations earlier this week. The congressman said, quote, we should aggressively be encouraging diplomacy and fully support Zelensky in reaching whatever settlement he sees achievable to save Ukrainian lives. And I do think this is a, a key question. If, if Zelensky is the is the one, you know, is on the pedestal that we've put him on, then don't we also need to empower him to fully negotiate with Putin? Because if he goes into negotiations with Russia, his people go into negotiations, and they're not empowered to lift sanctions and, or to otherwise speak on behalf of the coalition that's supporting him, then how does he even get, like, how do they get taken seriously But I think that is the case, that isn't it? He is empowered. We, we've said that we will lift the sanctions. Blinken said uh, yesterday morning that Putin would need to show irreversible commitments for us to lift the sanctions. So what does that mean? We don't even show irreversible yeah, what does right. that commitments. Mean? What does right. that mean? That means, like, you right. can't back out of an Iran deal. <laughs> right, yes. Right, so what... what no, the, we know how these commitments yes. work. <laughs> yes. We know they're not irreversible. Yeah. Right, and so... Yeah. it. And so there's a nervousness among some watchers of the situation who say that the, that the U.S. and the EU are going to keep a lot of these sanctions in place because they're beneficial. They right. believe that they're beneficial. That would be incredibly, incredibly right. foolish to do that and, because they're and it not be, beneficial. It would be throwing Ukraine into a meat grinder. Yeah. It, would be, yeah. it would be bad for Ukraine. It also right, continues to affect our gas prices, other things like that. Wheat prices. It puts us at war footing mm-hmm. with Russia. So that is just... It is a, such a bad idea that only our government could come up with right. it. But. Yeah. All of these, so many of these governments that believe in this realpolitik, zero sum, if, if, if our enemy is How many is times do they hurt. have to be discredited? Once again, it's I guess. one planet, man. One yeah. planet. Uh, what do you think about, so this poll showing that like 35% of people Insane. or whatever. Insane. Who are these people? <laughs> Why are these 30? That is a lot that of shows people. shows the power of the media, too. Oh, my gosh. Right. That would be willing to go to nuclear war. Are you kidding me over this? I mean, here's the thing with, with, the, with this conflict. I mean, I get it. We're, we're all very sympathetic towards Ukraine. This is a terrible humanitarian crisis. War is terrible. But, and I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of flack for saying this, there isn't a lot of difference between living in Russia and living in Ukraine. That, to me, is a fact. There's just not a whole lot of difference for the people that are in these countries. And so a country, if, worst case scenario, Russia takes all of Ukraine, decides to bring it back into the Russian fold, let's say that, I don't think that's what Russia's planning on doing, but let's just say it goes to that and it's being run by Russia. What do you think is going to happen to the average Ukrainian? Do you think they would notice a difference between living under a Ukrainian corrupt oligarch or living under a Russian uh, oligarch? I don't think their lives drastically change enough for us to say it's worth 
bombing you. Like for me to say, all right, Ryan, I'm going to let you and your family potentially get nuked because a Ukrainian might have a Russian government. It's just not different enough. If it were maybe, let's say, China coming in to France and taking over France, that is a drastic difference for the people of France, I would say. So that would be... Still not our problem. Now, we've made it our problem because France is a NATO country. There has to be some kind of limiting principle, though. Eventually, you have to say, okay... Russia can't have that. We have to. We have to risk nuclear. Like if, if they invade it, America, right? It would we, have to be. It wouldn't be so different to live under Russia than our current government, I guess. But we no. We I think can't it would be. I, think, I would personally fight Russia if they came to our our yeah. shores. I would pick up a gun myself and I would start fighting it because I don't want to live under that type like of government. That. I'd like to see that. <laughs> I'm from Idaho. So yeah. Yeah. I, I listen. <laughs> uh, but you know, look. If the, if it was like an actual genocide, if there was something really, really atrocious that was going on, and we have those conflicts that are actually going on around the world and we're not doing anything about those conflicts yet a, a Ukra- U- Ukraine that maybe might go under Russian control which by the way it's been under Russian control for practically its entire existence up until only how many years ago 30 something years ago it finally got some sort of in- independence to some level and so they had me, some independence during World War II and some right. of it it's a, yeah. I mean, they've been occupied yeah. by a lot of different people. So their lives are not drastically. It's just not different enough for me to say it's worth blowing up American families over. Well, I, I, just, I mean, basically nothing's worth nuclear war. I mean, that's the I, end. Well, that's I, it. you know, I, I, well, I, okay, I agree. Nuclear war is, is you know, I, definitely to me seems to be off the table. But if we just anything, say nothing's worth nuclear war, then we give up. We should. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a very hawkish nuclear. person, but we, that we, don't we just say then, okay, we won't do anything li- when if any country, if any evil country with nukes. Right. It would have to be we will really never do anything. atrocious. Like they would have to be like gassing people, you know, dropping chemical weapons and killing off entire cities for me to then say. Then we nuke the planet. Well, you would nuke the bad guys. <laughs> I mean, guys. I, I, and I'm, I'm definitely yeah. not, a, you know, every, I'm a, a total anti-war person, but still, there, to me, it has to be that bad in order for us to go to that level. I'm an anti-war bad. person, but we're allowed to defend ourselves, and we're allowed to defend countries. But nuclear that, war over a, a corrupt government going from, yeah. you know, a country that has been corrupt well, this, this, going from one sir, level. One well, we all agree, well, and most people agree, even 35% is a lot, but that's still that's a, a minority. Lot. Most people don't want to have nuclear want. war we'll over take the, that. You know. <sighs> Those are well, really high numbers, against though. nuclear war. We'll take that. We have to point. somehow. If they, inv- if they invaded France, we would nuke them, right? We would. I, I would support doing that. I mean, but then we'd all no, die. No, committed to. I agree. We would not. They can't. Not they, we would not all die. They can't. But the other uh, limiting. We, capa- they can't hit but us. It would definitely be well, enough for maybe Coast. a no fly. I don't know. The limiting capacity, though, to answer your question, it's it's not a theoretical question. It's a practical one. Russia, can, you know, hasn't gotten into Kiev yet. Right. They're not getting to Paris. I don't think they're trying to get into the cities. I actually think they're just trying to circle them and suffocate, like squeeze them because they're trying to negotiate. I don't think Russia wants to take Ukraine. I don't think that's their plan. I think they want Crimea. They want the Donbass region. I don't think they've ever had the... I, I know that's mm. what a lot of people here think. They're trying to grab territory and take Ukraine. I don't think that was I think the they plan. Did. I think they wanted... Yeah, well, we, we disagree. I we'll think they that. wanted Zelensky out, or I thought maybe they would take enough of the country where his government would flee, like the Afghanistan government. He's not and a powerful government. A, He's just a puppet. So they don't care about him. Well, now he's, he's a powerful figure. He's, he's now he's an extremely powerful figure. He might, be, like, he might figure. be a meme, but that's it. He's not really actually running no, if that you have the, if you no, have he the, is now. If you have the support of your people, which war brings to you, yeah. uh, and especially if you perform well yeah. during war. They've made him you, much more powerful real, than he that's was That's real power. Before. 
He's really still at the they behest made him an of Western governments. Important figure. He is a puppet to the West, and that's what he is, and that's what that government has been since the coup that was, you know, backed by the U.S. in 2014. We put in Western-backed leaders, and they're really just puppets for the West. So he's doing what the West wants and doing what the West says. I don't think he's really that powerful. Well, I think Russia's negotiating with us. Putin might have liked to think that, and it may have even been true in the past, but Putin's own actions oh, sure. have Zelensky's created him like now a as a powerful I don't know figure. if he's, he's powerful, no longer, but he's a hero, for sure. No, I mean, he's, if, if you have the support of your nation, that's where political power comes from. Yeah. Now, it's Ukraine, it's not China, it's not Russia, it's not the United States, so he's not a major power, right. but he is a powerful political figure, and he's on the world stage at this point. I mean, and you can see it in the way that uh, the U.S. media is finally deciding to spell his name correctly. <laughs> there was even an impeachment over, yeah, right. over him being shaken down by Trump. Yep. And they didn't bother to spell his name right at that point. But now, yeah. they're like, oh, somebody check his name. Oh, shoot, there's two Ys at the end. Okay, he's earned that. So he's earned his name being spelled correctly, which is its own form of But power. that's still, that's, you know, from our side, our perspective, I, I don't know what the Ukrainian people think about him. That would be interesting to... I mean, the Poles like are, him. They, well, they would yeah. like to stop being killed by Russia. I think they would like that. I think that there's probably strong support for that among <laughs> the Ukrainian strong people. Strong support for stop killing us. But we'll see how, ma how yeah. much of the southern portion of Ukraine, Russia actually does give back. So, yes, maybe right. they don't take the entire thing, but think all of that area around the Black Sea, they, they're going to try to hold on to. There's enormous natural gas in the Black Sea that they tried to negotiate for right. and didn't. So we'll, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see how much yeah. they... Well, coming up next, we'll tell you what's on our radar. Stick around for that. What's on your radar, Kim? Well, Russian tennis player Daniel Medvedev, who also happens to be the reigning number one men's tennis player in the world, is being told he cannot compete at Wimbledon unless he denounces Vladimir Putin. As it is, Russian and Belarusian tennis players are not seeing their country's flag next to their names during matches, nor hearing their country's anthems. They're competing as neutrals. Their tennis federations have been suspended and they've been banned from team international competition. But the UK government says this isn't enough. They are demanding Russian players give public assurances that they are not supporters of the Putin government or else. Nigel Huddleston, the United Kingdom sports minister, made this point during a parliament meeting Tuesday, say, stating over and over and over that he absolutely doesn't want to see the Russian flag anywhere at Wimbledon. OK, well, this problem has already been solved. Russian and Belarusian players didn't have their flag seen anywhere at the recent California-based Indian Wells tournament. But his indignation continued anyway until he said, I think we need to have some assurance that they're not supporters of Vladimir Putin and we are considering what requirements we may need to get assurances along those lines. Well, I have an idea. How about we bind them up and throw them in a lake to see if they sink or float? Over the past few weeks, we've seen scores of Russian anti-war protesters being thrown in jail over their opposition to the invasion of Ukraine. This isn't new. The West has asserted for years that Putin is a brutal dictator who silences his opposition. So it stands to reason the British government would understand there is a real risk to speaking up. Yet they demand it anyway. They want Daniel Medvedev and other Russian athletes to, according to their own claims, risk their lives and possibly their loved ones' lives in order to play at Wimbledon. These are athletes who have no control or power over what's happening in Ukraine. It makes no sense. And it's actually dangerous. Is this where we're headed as a society? 
It was one thing to virtue signal on social media to elevate one's social status, but it's an entirely other thing to force people into proving their virtue or they can't participate in their careers. We're still experiencing this with vaccine mandates. You still can't enter the United States unvaccinated, even though it's well known that vaccines do not stop the spread of COVID. We've known this for a long time, yet people, even those with natural immunity, were punished for not going along with the morality of those in power. Another tennis player, Novak Djokovic, is still being banned from playing in many tournaments because he refuses to get a vaccine that doesn't even slow the spread of Omicron. He didn't obey the morality overlords, and because of it, he's being punished. And now it's Medvedev, who is being told he must make a public statement denouncing Putin or risk his career. He's already stated he supports peace. Here it is. My message uh, is always the same. You know, I I want uh, peace in all the world, all the countries. Actually, don't know how many there are in the world, but every country, you know, that's what uh, I think every tennis player is going to say the same. It's always, you know, tough to talk uh, on this subject for me because uh, I just, you know, I want to play tennis. We play in different countries. I want to promote my sport. Um, I want to promote what I'm doing uh, in my country for sure also. And um, right now the situation is that that's the only way how I can play. So that's what I'm going to do, and same, I'm going to try to fight on the court, try to to win the tournaments, and try uh, to beat other guys. So the statement isn't enough. The world wants more. Babylon Bee, a parody website, made this posting that feels more like a future forecast than a joke. Medvedev has worked really, really hard to be the world's number one after spending a considerable amount of time in the top five. He's no Nadal or Federer or even Djokovic, who all have a slew of Grand Slam championships under their belts. But he's still young. At only 26, he's crushing it. He's number, his number one status is short-lived, with Djokovic expected to reign again this week. But this was because, for some reason, you could maybe even say psychological, Medvedev lost to a player married to a Ukrainian at Indian Wells. The crowd loved it. They loved seeing Russian Medvedev beaten by a man with a Ukrainian wife. The crowd having their favorites and villains is fine. It's expected. What isn't expected is for authorities to actually ponder banning players over virtue issues. Are we headed towards a society of a social credit system where people are judged by their beliefs and actions and those actions then translate into whether or not they can hold jobs or participate in society? Because it sure feels like it. So now um, some other news that kind of a a radar I did previously about Novak Djokovic is he is going to be allowed to play at the French Open. They do also expect uh, Medvedev will also be allowed to play at the French Open. I don't think the French are asking for the same thing that the British are asking for. The French have now dropped their vaccine mandate, so they're letting Djokovic in. They're also, you know, I don't think going to tell Medvedev he needs to go and denounce the government because that does potentially put himself at risk being men's number one tennis player right now being kind of a hero in Russia, and suddenly if you're denouncing the government, that could put you in a position that's not so friendly when you get back home. Um, he doesn't live there. He lives in France, right. actually. But still, it's, you know, this is a very, I, it, what, what are we doing? I mean, why, why would we make a citizen who has nothing to do with the war or their government, has no power, denounce publicly and put themselves at risk? Why do we, for, is it, you know, and I, and I could sit here and say, what's, you know, uh, the slippery slope, right? What's next? Is this, is, where are we leading and people might say, no, no, it's not a slippery slope. It's just this. It's just that. You know, it's just vaccines. It's just Putin. Right. No, it's not just these two things. This always does lead to something else. It's like the statue removal. Everybody laughed when people said, OK, what are you going to do next? Go after Abraham Lincoln. And people scoffed and said, oh, come on. No, we're just going after Confederates. 
And then they actually went after Abraham Lincoln and the statue. Yeah. So yeah, what is in the next? San Francisco schools? <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean there are there are slippery slopes, but I also do think it's useful to take these these particular ones case by case. And the difference between this, which I don't actually think is defensible, I, I agree with you on this, but I, I also don't think it's comparable to vac vaccines in the sense that that's something that tennis is asking somebody to do. They're saying you need to be vaccinated. They're not saying that you need to give a statement that Pfizer and Moderna are glorious savers of, of humankind. They're just saying we want you to, for public health reasons, we want you take, to take a vaccine or you can't play. But it was in still our game. virtue signaling. It wasn't, we knew at that point the science had been, you know, people were discussing it. They weren't following the science at that point. It was the, virtue signaling. It the, was like we all had to do it, so now you have to it, do it. It goes back to that conflation of stop and slow again. Yes, it's, it's true that the vaccine, even with Omicron, didn't, didn't stop the spread, but it did slow it because you're less likely to get infected. You're less likely to get hospitalized. Like for a few days. I mean, likely. barely. It wasn't, it wasn't for very long. What, what wasn't? The slowing of the spread. I mean, it, it wears off. That aspect of it wears off very quickly, in fact. And that's why they're now saying you have to get four doses of this thing. It makes you, it makes you less, um, because you get less sick if you've had the vaccine, you're less symptomatic. For, so you're, you know, so you're, you're less, less if you're coughing and sneezing less. I'm going to spread it. So then you're less uh, but I, I agree with you. It, it, I mean, Omicron <laughs> spread like wildfire. Yeah, doesn't matter. Despite all mitigation efforts in place. So that's correct. And yes, I agree with you. I think the, the, it's funny that the, the, the mandates are kind of going away, or it feels like they really are. And mm -hmm. we'll just look back at this kind of brief, brief on the historical scale, not brief for the, any of us who lived through it, but brief time period where, oh, yeah, it was, it was like, oh, my God, you're going to be required like your your health is now a public record, a matter of a public set. You're going to have to have all these things in line to go anywhere, do anything, which was a terrible idea. Now it's kind of now it is kind of thank God it's going away right. somewhat. And, hopefully, and it's going to be like, oh, yeah, remember that? Remember when there was that moment where it was like, yeah, I need to show you my vaccination card to like enter Subway. Like how insane yeah, was that? The Subway yeah, and Subway. Ho hopefully it'll go the same way as the Spanish flu, where people are like, actually, no, I don't remember that. Like in yeah. 1919, like 1920. I don't like think the, we're not going to. I don't. <laughs> but here, here's, I can't imagine us not remembering this. I know, but here's what's amazing: 20 plus million people died in the Spanish flu. Did you guys? I mean, I, I have. I happened to read a book about it like 10 years ago or so, and I was like, wow. We okay, but that's, that's a generational. Okay, right. So in generations from by, now, they might the not. By, by the end of the 20s, they're like dancing and partying, and everybody just wants to forget this horrifying yeah. experience. And it did not, like all of the restrictions, the civil liberties restrictions that were in place, which also included at the same, roughly the same time, Eugene Debs getting thrown in prison for opposing the war, all of those things kind of faded. Uh, but it looks like we're moving on into new things, which is this, okay, you need to show us your, your virtue passport now. But that's the thing. I don't, I, don't, I don't think there's a connection between I do. I feel the, like people are now, I, I mean, look, like I, even for my upcoming wedding, my photographer is Russian, and he was like asking, you know, emailing, saying, is this okay? Is, is it okay? Oh, yeah. But I don't but think, I think, I don't think that the, the, the xenophobia yeah. against right. the other is not... It, it, maybe there, there, are, there are new elements. Well, I, I said this in a previous radar about how I, I thought it, it, it's a little different to have the sort of liberal, intellectual, artistic, commanding heights kind of requiring this. Whereas I remember this being kind of like during 9/11, rock war being kind of a you know 
or the conservative, you know, the, the deplorables are the types of people who want to do this. But but just xenophobia against but enemies in think... war isn't is a you know is it's something an old that... thing. Yeah, but I... the Japanese, hating the Germans in World War One. Right. It's an old part of. I know. It's, uh, well, I'm hoping we don't actually go in that direction. But I do think that people, you know, if they're wearing a MAGA hat, they're not allowed to come inside. I mean, yeah. I, I do think that they're, we're, we are leading ourselves down this path of virtue, a, a, a social credit yeah. system. Larry David had a great episode on that where he would wear a MAGA hat in L.A. so that people would leave him alone and it worked. <laughs> <laughs> so but, cult- and also culturally we're there. It's, it's so yeah. hypocritical. Like you're going to be required to denounce Russia and support Ukraine. In order to but, but you are not allowed to say anything bad about, if you say something bad about China, you can't, right. your, your, your artistic product and is not going problem. to be seen. In the, right. No, it is a, pro- a problem. It's totally hypocritical. Totally. It's, it's, Appallingly but, hypocritical. Right, like, it's a social credit system. Or Disney wants to boycott the state of Florida or something over the Don't Say Gay bill, but but will, will, but will not say anything against the, the Chinese regime, which is doing far more far worse yeah. things to the, the planet Earth right. than Ron DeSantis. Right. Well, so. I think we've got Ryan's radar next. Looking forward to that. All right. Ryan, what's on your radar? Well, at yesterday's White House press briefing, the drumbeats for war banged on. Even after Jen Psaki noted she'd been asked the same question about providing fighter jets roughly 167 times. And I want to go back to the mix quickly and just be crystal clear about what you're saying. Because when I asked the president about this earlier, he said he's not going to comment. He didn't say that it's not an option. So well, we've, we've well, spoken to it yeah. for approximately 167 times. Well, so maybe he, but, yeah. Well, here's 168. Go ahead. Go there's ahead. Growing, there's a growing number of Republicans and Democrats who are supporting the U.S. striking a deal with Poland to send the mix. You have uh, Elise Stefanik earlier today saying uh, Ukraine needs those MiGs. You have uh, Scalise say getting those MiGs in immediately is critical. There's a growing chorus of voices saying that now is the time. Has the president reconsidered his stance at all at this point? No, because our military makes assessments. Uh, which they put out that assessment last week, and I would just echo that one part of the assessment uh, is based on what equipment is effective in fighting this war, anti-armor and air defense systems. They are effectively defending the country. That is what we have provided additional assistance on. Second, they have several squadrons of mission-capable aircraft. Uh, you heard President that are not being Kristen that are not Kristen that are not being utilized. This is the assessment by our Defense Department. Third, uh, they are also assessing uh, that uh, the transfer to Ukraine may be mistaken as escalatory. So this is how our Defense Department is assessing. They are assessing also that it would not significantly change the effectiveness of the Ukrainian Air Force. And these are the types of risk risk assessments we certainly understand. We share the passion, the anger, the horror at what we're seeing, and that is why we are uh, we significantly increase the types of military assistance, the types of equipment that we know is effective, and our Defense Department is determined is effective in fighting this war. The press corps continued asking about those jets, but also made a more general appeal for just more war. You have noted from the podium that, that, that Putin has shown no signs of changing course. You've also noted that there are significant consequences that Putin could still face. Even with this additional aid that you're providing today, it seems there are still other options on the table. So why hold back? Why not use every tool at your disposal now to spare additional lives? 
Well, I, I think if you look at the range of tools that we've used to date, we have, Im, Im, uh, we have implemented more economic sanctions uh, than we have on any other economy in the world. You, you could compare it potentially to Iran or maybe North Korea, but Russia is, is a much more significant economy, a larger economy. And so I wouldn't say that we are holding back in that sense. We do have additional steps we can take, as we've talked about a bit in here before, obviously the SWIFT uh, banking system and the implementation of those sanctions happens institution by institution. Uh, there are additional individuals that can be sanctioned. Uh, we can have new targets. We can deepen the severity of sanctions on existing targets. We can further eject Russia from international economic or the international economic order. We can further deny Russia the capacity to mon modernize and diversify its economy, like we have with the export controls and the and the cutting off of access to a lot of technology. And we can further in, in, uh, expose and hold to account the kleptocracy. These are additional actions we have, additional options we have, uh, and we can take them, and that is a decision that we would make through a discussion internally. But what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Can you imagine if the press covered climate change like this, or the expiration of the child tax credit, or the Saudi and UAE war on Yemen that has led to hundreds of thousands of deaths, or the seizure of Afghanistan's central bank reserves? But all of that was actually tame compared to the last question of the day. Watch as this reporter stops Jen Psaki so that he can answer his own question with the answer he's looking for. Right, go ahead. Thank you, Jen. You put out a list of all of the military yeah. equipment included in that $400 million, $800 million yeah. that's being provided to Ukraine. Among those items, let me read them to you, 100 grenade launchers, 5,000 rifles, 1,000 pistols, 400 machine guns and 400 shotguns. Are you saying those items are not offensive weapons? They're weapons that help the Ukrainian people fight against an invasion by a foreign country. They can be used offensively, can they not? Again, they're weapons. What I'm talking about is weapons that can be yes. used to the, fight. The answer is yes. I mean, although you don't want to say it, that answer to that question is yes. And so obviously you're trying to make this distinction between Offensive. Well, what we're talking about. Let me weapons. finish. Let me finish. Well, let me we're finish. Let me finish. My, let me finish my made, answer. No, you are. No, I was finishing a point, and then you can respond to my. Okay, answer. go ahead. All right, you're making this distinction between offensive and defensive weapons. Anybody that looks at that list of weapons that I just mentioned, they would say clearly they're offensive. If a Ukrainian military officer or someone who is enlisted has one of these weapons, they can take out. Uh, a Russian military official of some sort with these weapons. They're offensive in nature. So why not provide more offensive weapons like this to the Ukrainian military? Well, first of all, we are providing a range of rifles, etc. There is a difference between a plane and planes and massive military systems. I think anybody would recognize this. Uh, and what we're talking about, which is giving rifles and pistols to many of them farmers and people living in countrysides to defend themselves. I think there's a difference that most people recognize. Thank you, everyone, so much. I, I mean, he's th that question asker is, is not totally wrong in that that question asker is not totally wrong in that yet those weapons, right, there's not a gun is a gun. You can, you can shoot somebody with a gun. Sure. Right, True. and if you, it's it's that Ukraine is in a defensive position, so it's using these weapons defensively. But whether they're offensive or defensive in nature is not is a 
really the distinction here is that giving them these weapons or, or helping Ukraine in, the, in this way is not, we've decided, going to be perceived as an act of war right. by Russia, whereas giving them other weapons or doing other things would be perceived as right. an act of war. That's the difference. And yes, right. it's not, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's just what it is. That, right. that, this is the line where these things, we've all agreed, we and Russia agree, are war with Russia, and these things are not. So we're doing these things. And one place, that, and I'm curious for your take on this, one place it does make some real-world sense would be if you've got a pistol, you've got a grenade launcher, you have an anti-aircraft piece of, you know, you've got a javelin, those are only going to be able to kill a Russian if the Russian comes into Ukraine. Right. right. Like from Kiev, you can't kill right. any Russian. But I guess a pistol but can only kill a Russian if they're invading the, you. And he was like, you could Ukraine shoot an officer or an official yeah. with a gun. Yes, you can shoot somebody yeah. with a gun. That's true. But you'd have to go up to them. Right. So you'd have to go into Russia with your javelin. Right. And then sh- go to a base and shoot a tank with it. Right. And an- especially an anti-aircraft weapon is only going to be useful. If there's if an there's aircraft, aircraft, like, actually in, coming in your, after you. Right. Whereas right. with a plane... That can be over Moscow in yeah. three minutes, and you've heard Putin repeatedly complain about, I could be bombed in three minutes. Like, that's, that's one of the things he's used as his justification for why he had to invade. These long-range missiles and, and planes can be used much more easily offensively than a handgun you give to a farmer. And more importantly, actually, and what Jen Sok, well, she probably can't really say this, I guess, out loud in a press conference, otherwise she'll get in trouble, but Putin's the one who's deciding what's offensive or defensive right now. Yeah. He's the one making yes. the list. Yeah. So he says, these are the weapons that I consider offensive. These are the weapons right. I consider defensive. Right. The, yes, that's what I, yeah, that's yeah. What I said. Yeah, right. exactly. Right. I agree. Yeah. Right. And it right. doesn't make any sense, but it's... it's a, so it's up to him. He yeah. decides. So what if, if he believes that, okay, pistols, rifles, grenade launchers, whatever, are more defensive, then that's his decision. But this journalist who's trying to push the Biden administration saying, no, these are offensive. You can go kill people with these. So why not give them more offensive weapons? Well, it's not. And why are you why are you classifying certain weapons as offensive versus defensive? No, Putin is deciding. Clearly, the the press was trying to trick her into admitting that we're already in a war with Russia, at which point, why don't we just Created Go to a war with Russia. We're already in. Right. That's what they were trying to establish, which is not the case. We right. are not in a war with Russia. We don't want to be in a war with Russia. The current situation does not call for us to be in a war with Russia if it remains the current situation. So we should not escalate. And in Absolutely fact, most not. people right. in Congress and most of the country and the Biden administration all agree that we should not escalate it in that way. Except for that room. That room wants us to escalate it very why badly. Why are all of these journalists all about, why are they so warmongery? It's a, it's a good question. we got to get Philip on. He knows them a lot. He works with them every day. I'm only there. I was there for that one. I didn't get a question in. I'm only there once or twice a week. Philip's there all the time. So I'd, I'd be, you know, we could, and we could bring some of the other ones on and, and ask them, do you not think? I guess they think that... It's not going to lead to nuclear war. Like, that's the only thing I can get my head around, that they just don't believe. Right. Because they do understand. War with no, they have to know what a no-fly zone is. Like, I understand that some people who answer these polls don't get that, like, no-fly zone sounds very benign. Like, oh, yeah, just nobody would be don't flying. Don't fly there. Right. Yeah. Right. It's not a magic bubble. Like, we would, it's us shooting down Russian planes. Right. And they must be convinced that we would shoot down a Russian plane and that Russia would not, and, there, and that there's no way that it spirals into a nuclear war. That, right. Or, or, yeah. or, I don't know. They, Maybe it only, it only spire, spirals into a nuclear war in Europe, I guess. So. How long do you think the press room lasts in a nuclear war? Yeah. I mean, come on. The White House? Yeah, exactly. I mean, who do you like, think's being targeted? 
I mean, yeah, even yes. what we're seeing, well, who Russia's, Russia's targeting in Ukraine. Can you, would you even be able to file your last dispatch in the five-minute warning you have that you're about to be incinerated? Who would you, who, what would be your last tweet before it goes down? Who would you, who would be the last person you try to cancel or something? <laughs> Got to agonize over that tweet. It better be good. It'd all be like, oh, there's some problematic stuff. And then you send it and you see a typo. No. 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 <laughs> all right. Well, I think Robbie's next, right? I think so. Looking forward to your radar. So, Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, I've got another great, crazy college campus students incident for you all at Yale Law School, where the ch a chapter of the Federalist Society had invited two speakers to campus to discuss a recent Supreme Court case, one that is impossible to pronounce. Uzugbanam versus Przewski is the best job I can do. I don't know how accurate that is, but <laughs> that's what I said it was. Uh, so this case involves religious freedom. The participants were Kristen Wagoner and Monica Miller, the participants in the event they were going to have about this case. Wagoner is general counsel at the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a legal group that advocates for conservative social and religious causes. And Miller represents the American Humanist Association, which is, of course, a secular organization. While Wagoner and Miller often take opposite positions in general, this specific case is a question of religious freedom, an issue that united many supporters of civil liberties on both the left and the right. So the ADF and AHA actually had both provided assistance to the plaintiff, Chike Uzubunam, whose college had prohibited him from doing, uh, trying to recruit other people to his religion on campus. So the scheduled discussion about the case, which was decided, by the way, eight to one in his favor, with John Roberts as the only dissenter for the first time ever and since John Roberts joined the Supreme Court. So the case was meant to illustrate that a liberal atheist and a conservative Christian could find common ground on free speech issues, according to the Washington Free Beacon, which had a great report on how the event actually went down. So the law students refused to recognize this common ground. Dozens of them protested the event and heckled the participants. So they interrupted Kate Stith, who was a law professor at Yale. As she attempted to introduce Wagner and Miller, Stith quickly became irritated with the students and actually dared to call them out. At one point, she said, grow up, which made them furious. Let's watch. Can I ask you all, as you know, Yale has a policy of freedom of speech. So in that video, students can be heard asserting the view that principles of free speech gave them the right not to merely ask questions or protest the event, but to ceaselessly interrupt the speakers. When Stith accused the students of, quote, disrupting the free speech of the speakers, the students fired back that, well, you're disrupting us. The Free Beacon has more. Quote, the protesters proceeded to exit the event. One of them yelled, 
FU Federalist Society on his way out, but congregated in the hall just outside, and they then began to stomp, shout, clap, sing, and pound the walls, making it difficult to hear the panel. Chants of protect trans kids and shame, shame reverted throughout the law school. It was so loud that it disrupted nearby classes, exams, faculty meetings, according to students and a professor who spoke, uh, again, with the Washington Free Beacon. At times, things seemed in danger of getting physical. The protesters were blocking the only exit, and two members of the Federalist Society said they were grabbed and jostled as they attempted to leave. It was disturbing to witness law students whipped into a mindless frenzy, Wagner said. I did not feel it was safe to get out of the room without security. So police officers eventually arrived to escort the panelists out of the building. Their presence made the the students even angrier. Nearly 400 current law students signed an open letter accusing Yale of putting the lives of the LGBTQ community in danger, ostensibly because police are disproportionately likely to harm members of the LGBT community, at least according to the letter. I don't know that that's true, but that's what the letter asserted. And also because the ADF is recognized by the Southern Poverty Law Center as an anti-LGBTQ hate group. Quote, understandably, a large swath of YLS students felt that Fed Society's decision to lend legitimacy to this hate group by inviting its general counsel to speak at YLS profoundly undermines our community values of equity and inclusivity at a time when LGBTQ youth are actively under attack in Texas, Florida, and other states. That's what the letter reads. We write today because in addition to the deeply disrespectful presence of ADF on campus and the faculty moderator's dismissal of our peaceful actions as childish, armed police officers were called into the Sterling Law Building in response to our exercise of peaceful protest. Look, students have every right to oppose the presence of police on campus if they want to, and they should feel free to protest anyone whose legal advocacy they view as hostile to the LGBTQ community. And certainly the ADF has taken positions in cases that people would characterize as anti-LGBTQ. But law students should be able to grapple with these positions and debate them. They can't silence every person who tries to express a view they disagree with. They shouldn't come away from law school with the impression that it's constructive to avoid engaging whatsoever with ideological opponents. Again, as the Supreme Court case in question demonstrate, trials can make for strange bedfellows and even lawyers who quarrel passionately. They must nevertheless be able to understand one another and show some basic respect. Future lawyers should have the critical thinking skills, intellectual curiosity, humility, and maturity to engage with ideas and legal principles that they may disagree with, said Wagner in a statement to the Yale Daily News. Unfortunately, some students who attended the Federalist Society event refused to allow others to speak and acted in an aggressive and hostile manner towards me, Professor Kate Stith, and Monica Miller from the American Humanist Association. So this kerfuffle at Yale comes two weeks after a similar incident at UC Hastings that I covered in a previous radar. You can check that out if you missed it, where law students prevented Ilya Shapiro, who is a libertarian conservative legal expert, from debating Rory Little, who was a UC Hastings law professor and a progressive thinker. So they were going to have a debate, and they couldn't have it because, again, law students shouted them down. The next generation of attorneys, judges, and justices are not acquitting themselves very well lately. It's difficult not to sympathize with Stiff's frustration that And when she just declared this, I think she spoke for a lot of people that perhaps they just need to grow up. Yeah, it's really, really uh, scary to think because these are Yale law students. Yeah, these are important students. When it's just the when it's just the uh, the uh, L.A. you know graduate students who are going to be unemployed anyway. But these people actually have important jobs to do. Well, right. These are the people where they do actually grab the justices from. I mean, these are these are the future judges of America. And that is 
what is the most concerning about this is, and, and I've mentioned this before, you know, my fear is that as justices get replaced on the courts, um, they're, they're picking from people that have an ideology that is very much, you, you can only believe what I think you should believe and you can only say what I think is right, then that will maybe fundamentally change right. how free speech, you know, the First Amendment is actually interpreted. And that, to me, is very scary. And, and well before that happens, what about when these people are hired into law firms and, they, you know, that you start having collegial or, uh, debates or disagreements or different takes on issues and or they start saying, no, you can't, you've made me, you've harmed my, you've compromised my safety by expressing a view I disagree with. Yeah. But Yale, a lot of those students end up going on to be professors themselves yeah, at law schools sure. around the country. So they're going to be educating future lawyers. This is Yale. It's an right. important place. And then they end up oftentimes becoming judges, a lot of them. Yale is kind of one of those special institutions because of the way they teach law that it is more, uh, it, it, they don't, a lot of times the lawyers don't actually go into practicing law. They go into interpreting law and teaching law more philosophical from Yale. And that's that philosophy I don't agree with. No. And I don't really understand how they think they're going to accomplish whatever they're trying to accomplish by doing that. Like, who's that, who's that winning over? Or do they already feel like they've won and so they just need to suppress any, when, when what, I, what was the this, what, what was the issue again? Like what were they there, there, there was just going to be a, a discussion by two legal minds, two lawyers about the Supreme Court case, which was a religious freedom case that was decided eight one, hmm. where actually the both the liberals and the uh, liberal group and conservative group agreed and had worked together on the case. So it was supposed to be like, look how people who disagree mm -hmm. on a lot of issues can collaborate in sometimes in the legal profession and the just not allowed <laughs> also agreed right i mean eight to one yeah it was eight yeah. to one yeah. right so lone dissent from john Roberts. What, what did he why did he dissent uh, so he said so the case it's a bit technical but the, ca the case was so this guy was you know, trying to recruit people to his religion on his the campus and the campus said this was like a violation of religious this was violating religious freedom he said no wait this is my religious freedom i get to do this but he didn't file suit until a, a long time later. So John Roberts said that it was like past, it was too outside the, or he couldn't show enough harm, yeah. and it's too it's too long. And if we we re-examine this issue, it just opens us up to tons of like frivolous. Right. Yeah. Roberts always does that. Whenever he dissents, it's usually because of a technicality yeah, of some it was kind. A technicality. <laughs> okay. But, uh, hmm. So anyway, it's uh, but when I but anyway when I talk to students like this, I tend to hear them. They're not thinking of it in tactical terms because, yeah, mm -hmm. right, this looks bad. We're all making fun of them now. Uh, a wide swath of humans are making fun of them. But their view is that it is what they're doing is necessary for the defense and protection of marginalized people in the community. Right. That's but their view. If, if it's tactically stupid, it actually undermines those marginalized people. Yeah. But they, but they think people literally die because that that woman Wagner which would be a good reason to take your tactics more seriously yeah. if it's life and death it's, uh, it's crazy stuff whatever but coming up uh, New York State Assemblyman Ron Kim will join us to discuss updates on the Cuomo brothers stick around for that Former CNN host Chris Cuomo is suing CNN for 125 million dollars Quote, as a result of Turner's indefensible choice to unceremoniously fire him, Cuomo has been damaged in countless ways. So that's from his legal team. Cuomo is reportedly calling out his former co-workers, Jake Tapper, Brian Stelter, and Don Lemon. He says they smeared him on air while commenting on his firing for advising his brother, former New York governor, Andrew Cuomo. 
And the dirt throwing didn't stop there, according to Cuomo's legal team. Quote, CNN's highest level executives not only knew about Chris's involvement in helping his brother, but also actively assisted the governor both through Chris and directly themselves. As CNN has admitted, network standards were changed in a calculated decision to boost ratings. When those practices were called into question, Chris was made the scapegoat, end quote. New York Assemblyman Ron Kim joins us now with his reaction. Welcome back to Rising. Thank you for having me back on. Yeah, we're so glad to have you with us. So, you know, it's interesting. Chris Cuomo is trying, you know, to make himself the victim here. And, um, you know, maybe he has a point that the complicity in CNN goes much deeper than him. But, you know, he is <laughs> not a sympathetic figure, I don't think, for, you know, his involvement in covering up uh, or assisting, aiding, giving it counsels on how to cover up or how to deal with just the reprehensible things that uh, that his brother was doing. You know, what is what is the deal with this family? Yeah, it's, he certainly is not the victim. I think him and his brother likes to think they're victims, but they are clearly have engaged in abusive behavior. Um, and, and Chris Como broke journalistic integrity by getting himself involved um, with political matters when he should have been a, a fair reporter, an investigative reporter in the situation. I mean, it's clear. I mean, everyone understands why that's wrong. And he should be held accountable. The CNN should be held accountable. Everyone involved should be held accountable. And for him to now turn around and play the victim is ridiculous. Well, Andrew Cuomo has been fielding calls from potential supporters as he considers a comeback campaign for governor. According to CNBC, the former governor's aides have conducted their own internal polling on a potential matchup between Cuomo and his replacement, current governor Kathy Hochul. Uh, Meanwhile, just this week, a New York State comptroller audit revealed that under Cuomo, the New York State Health Department concealed over 4,000 nursing home COVID deaths under Cuomo's leadership. The the audit also found that New York health officials sometimes underreported the full death toll by as much as 50 percent from April 2020 to February 2021. And so, Assemblyman Kim, you you have been all over him uh, for this this scandalous uh, treatment of people living in nursing homes in New York. Uh, The way that he resigned in some ways allowed him to escape accountability for for that element of his leadership, which I feel like might be enabling this flirting with running again. Do you think that, uh, first of all, how serious do you think this this run is or that that he's contemplating? I mean, I, I think he's floating it out there to try to change the topic. I mean, the truth is we have now indisputable evidence from three independent investigations that the former governor Andrew Cuomo suppressed life and death nursing home information from the public at the peak of COVID. I mean, I think the next logical question is trying to answer why. Who profited from covering up nursing home um, death toll numbers? All you have to do is follow the money. You know, Andrew Cuomo pocketed $5.1 million on a book deal uh, that he won in a bidding war that, that coincided with the suppression of nursing home data. You know, he, he gave uh, a get-out-of-jail-free card to his top donors that, you know, ret- and he retroactively took away people's right to recourse in nursing homes. All these things, I believe, is, is criminal public fraud, and he needs to be held accountable, and he is a master at dodging accountability. And you're, you're right. If he had gone through the impeachment pro- uh, process, he would have had due process, and he would have um, been exposed, and we would have went to discovery, and all the facts would have come out, and he dodged that. 
um, by falling on the sword for sexual harassment uh, charges. Yeah, the, the ego of this man, he has at, at this point, right, he deserves much worse. He's, he's kind of gotten away with the more serious crime and, and to have the, to, have the, the, to dare to aspire or even openly discuss seeking office again, I mean, it, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable to, to, have, to have that much ego. Yeah, he is clearly a narcissistic, you know, egomaniac. I think everyone understands that. He should be spending most of the campaign dollars on getting therapy. I mean, but the truth is, like, he's been in this game of politics since he was 14 years old. This is all he knows. A, a normal, sane person would walk away and spend time with their family, be contrite, and apologize for all the mistakes you made. And maybe, maybe in a few years, you could make people, the public would forget, forgive, and you can make a comeback. But he's trying to gaslight and, and, and dominate the narrative. This is, this is the only thing that he knows, and it's very sickening and sad. You know, Ron, uh, regarding the nursing home deaths, and I even kind of have this question about CNN and, and Chris Cuomo, in both scenarios, I can't imagine that these two are the only ones who were involved in these various different scandals. I mean, clearly with Chris Cuomo, um, you know, he, he wasn't the only one who decided to put his brother on television. There was definitely multiple people who were thinking this was this would be a really good idea. There's definitely, I think, multiple people that were involved in the nursing home uh, situation in New York, the, the terrible scandal there. So what is happening to these other people? I mean, I, you probably don't know about the CNN stuff, but give us insight. Are others being held accountable in New York for the nursing home deaths? Right. The Department of Health, as the recent controller's audit pointed out, uh, protected political interests and industry profits over saving people's lives. This is the, one of the largest state agencies in charge of protecting people's health and, and their lives. And they sold us out for politics and short-term gain uh, for the industry. Uh, the former governor, the former commissioner, uh, anyone who's involved at the bureaucratic level must be held accountable. Otherwise, what kind of message are we sending to other mayors, other governors, other commissioners, other future politicians of how government functions. We're up, we're telling them we can monetize every aspect of public service and get away with it. And that is not what we're about. Well, exactly. And to that point, I mean, there are questions about some other, uh, outside New York even, so other uh, uh, nursing home COVID decisions that were made. There's questions about uh, Gretchen Whitmer and, and a, a similar policy. I, I'm, I'm from Michigan. I know that the people have a lot of uh, questions about whether something similarly went on. And it's like we're not, because Cuomo has sort of evaded responsibility, it's like we're not having that broader conversation because we haven't even, you know, we haven't even gotten him yet. So we can't, we can't, I mean, we, he's out of office, but he's not been held, you know, criminally accountable for, for what strikes a lot of people like obviously criminal conduct. Yeah, and people, this is, this is why I call it American elder side. Uh, we, Thousands, tens of thousands of older adults died in, the, in these facilities. But the public sentiment, we have a very ageist sentiment and culture mm-hmm. where we think older adults are disposable. And, and Cuomo himself come out, came out and publicly said, who cares? They were going to die anyways. Who cares where they died? This is the, those are exactly his words at a press conference. And he has further normalized and conditioned us to let us believe it's okay to kill old people in these facilities. And that is why we must coin this term as elder side. And everyone, starting with Como, must be held accountable because as we face a crisis moment in this country of, a, of an aging population that's going to quadruple in size in the next 30 years, we have absolute zero solutions for long-term care. 
And this is the moment we need accountability, and then we need to transform our Department of Health all across the country to make sure we get this correct. And the, and the part to me that always ratcheted this crime up to an even higher level was, was the money involved, that it, was, mm -hmm. it wasn't just covering it up for political purposes to, to defend himself against criticism from the public. It was so that this $5 million book wouldn't be undermined by the reality that his leadership had not been what he had, had said it was. But just on the raw politics, I'm, I'm curious if he decided to jump in. Like, is this a laughingstock of a campaign or is this something to take seriously? Again, I think he's just trying to distract us from focusing on the investigation of nursing homes. Uh, he's going to throw everything out there to get the, get the media and the public to focus on him and his reelection, trying to control the narrative. That's what he's good at. Um, if he does jump in, I think the data and polling shows he's polling worse than Donald Trump in New York State. Um, 60, almost 70 percent of the public do not want him to be returning to public service. But a heads up race against the current governor, he's in striking distance. And I think that's because the current governor has not done enough to push back and hold Cuomo accountable. People think that he's the sa she's the same as, as the former administration, mm -hmm. that she, she was his lieutenant, and she hasn't said anything to, to speak about uh, accountability and, and, and getting to the bottom of what happened with the nursing home deaths. Mm -hmm. Well, Assemblyman, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. Coming up, we have retired combat veteran and Democratic Missouri Senate candidate Lucas Kuntz joining us to discuss his thoughts on making the U.S. less dependent on foreign crude oil. Stick around. With gas prices surging higher than ever before, fresh calls to reel back our reliance on other countries for crude are getting louder. Retired combat veteran and Democratic Missouri Senate candidate Lucas Kuntz is one of those voices. Kuntz tweeted, it's time for American oil companies to put America first. After decades of keeping us on our knees at the pump, they need to prove their loyalty. Kuntz joins us now to tell us how. Welcome, Lucas. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, so what we have here, you know, is we have a situation where Americans are being held hostage and have been held hostage for decades by big oil. And so, you know, we give these guys $20 billion a year in subsidies, taxpayer subsidies from the American taxpayer. And then they turn around and every excuse they can get, it, you know, they take it to gouge us at the pump. And so uh, we have a pretty simple three-point plan on how to fix this. And the first thing we're going to do is if you drill oil in America – it stays in America. It goes towards our energy needs. It stays here, and we keep it with Americans. The second thing is to cap profits at fifteen at five percent, and then any profits over five percent, we're going to put towards uh, investing in the next generation of energy technology. And lastly, there needs to be accountability. So if you break these laws, you go to jail. Yeah, I, you know, with the oil companies, it's it's kind of we hear this all the time right now with the gas prices rising. People will say to others, oh, well, we all have to do our part. You know, we're helping Ukrainians to so just pay a little bit more. Everybody's got to do their part. But nobody asks the companies to do their part. You know, what, their part would be to lower their prices. They're making off like bandits with their high gas prices and they're not they're not doing their part by uh, whittling down their profit margins, are they? No, I mean, it's absolute madness. The only thing they care about that is themselves, right? Like, if you, if you just look at what the Exxon CEO said in January, he said he wasn't worried about increasing production. He was worried about profit per, per, profit per barrel. That's what they care about. And meanwhile, 
They take $20 billion from the American taxpayer every single year, and then they turn around and they don't give, you know, they don't help us at the pump on that. They give that money back to shareholders through share buybacks or other things. They're doing $38 billion of share buybacks this year. And that money, that doesn't go to normal everyday people. Normal everyday people pay for that at the pump, and then that money goes to people who hold their stock, like the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, for example. Or, you know, one in four members of Congress own fossil fuel stocks, so you can kind of see how nothing has changed. That's why members of Congress shouldn't own stock at all and why we need a new plan to make sure that these excess profits go towards creating competition with oil companies so that they actually have to be competitive rather than taking our money and giving it to shareholders. Well, there's been so much uh, disdain for the suffering of working class people. You know, high gas prices really hurt them. But I I think a certain kind of liberal elite has taken the stance because of Ukraine. Like, oh, yeah, we got to do like Kim said, we got to do our part. We got to do whatever we can. So it's fine. I'll, I'll gladly pay. Uh, you know, higher prices to, you know, to, to for the cause. And, and that's totally fine. Well, it might be fine for you, but it's not fine for, for most normal, ordinary people. Yeah, look, the job of our government is to provide for the common defense. And when I think about this, you know, I, the, the price at the pump, that's not all that normal Americans are paying. I mean, you know, our fifth fleet, the U.S. Navy fifth fleet spends tons of time Uh, In the Straits of Hormuz, we spend billions of dollars there every single year keeping those straits open so that Exxon, Chevron, and others can extract oil from the Middle East. And you know where that oil goes? It goes to Asia, right? 76% of that goes to Asia. We are essentially paying to keep China's supply chains open so that these big oil companies who don't care about us, you know, the old Exxon CEO once said, I'm not a U.S. company. I don't do what's in the interest of the America of the United States. Like it's so that they can profit. They can give to their shareholders. They say sacrifice at the pump, but they're not about sacrifice. Our sacrifice at the pump, it doesn't go to Ukraine. It doesn't help Ukraine. It goes to shareholders of these companies and it goes to increasing their bottom line. Well, it's, it's funny because there's reports recently that Saudi Arabia is considering accepting yuan from China uh, for Saudi oil, which would yeah, which and the U.S. is uh, is fighting against that, saying that that would undermine the U.S. petrodollar. It'd be funny to say, all right, fine, uh, pay and you want, but then you need your own naval fleet out there. Yeah, protect- that's right. Stop asking the American taxpayer to subsidize you, and that's what happens over and over again, right? I mean, when Western Europe was getting cheap gas from Russia, you know, from 2014 onward, after Russia had already invaded Ukraine, they expected the American taxpayer to pri- provide them a defense umbrella right us we put more troops over there i worked at the pentagon i was part of that like like everybody wants the u.s taxpayer to subsidize them whether it's western europe whether it's these oil companies and everything else and like my biggest fear here and i'm truly truly concerned i mean we're talking about china right now is we are we're not moving toward the next generation of energy right we're stuck subsidizing these oil companies meanwhile europe realizes that they need to move on they're saying they want to expand into new technologies and the country that is ahead of us on things like solar, wind, and others is China. So if we don't start investing in that, what we're looking at right now is trading a reliance on you know Saudi and Russian uh, authoritarians for a dependence on Chinese authoritarians, you know China, for our energy needs. And that's going to be an absolute tragedy. That is how we lose. It's how American taxpayers lose. And when the, you know our Constitution says that the role of the government is to provide for for common defense. 
like what I'm talking about and taking these excess profits and putting it in the next generation of energy, that is our common defense. That's our national security. And if we don't do it, we're going to lose to China. Yeah. Uh, Well, there have been several reports predicting oil prices are actually going to level off in the coming weeks. I'm curious, do you buy that? Do you think gas prices are going to stay low or go higher? It's hard to tell. I mean, it's the, you know, we are run by a cartel right now. That cartel, they're not accountable to supply and demand. They're accountable to some public opinion and to politicians who they, generally speaking, buy off. And so what they're doing right now is they're making the calculation on where do we want the oil and gas prices to go so that, you know, people like Lucas Kuntz don't come in who aren't bought off by us, get traction with good policies and actually do things that hurt our bottom line. And so I suspect, you know, they're going to try to balance that line on public perception versus their profits. And uh, whatever they do, though, it's not going to stop them from taking the $20 billion a year and then, you know, and then from the American taxpayer and then giving $38 billion to their shareholders. They're going to stay on track for that. And so I, I like the messaging of, of the, the three-point plan that you laid out, but I want to get into the weeds on it for a second because capping at a 5% uh, profit feels a lot like something I'm sure you're very familiar with from your time in the military, cost plus contracting. You know, so if, if Halliburton has, you know, cost plus 5%, all of a sudden they figure out a way to make the soup that they just sold to the military cost $300 because then they get 5% of $300 rather than 5% of what the soup actually costs. So how do you, how do you design this in, in a world where you can actually, like, legislate this? How do you design this in a way that doesn't push oil companies to drive prices as high as they can so that that 5% is a higher figure for them? Yeah, and so what we used to have at the Pentagon uh, a long time ago was we had a robust contracting agency that knew what knew what the cost was to do business, and they would they would analyze that and they could go after them. We had laws in place; those all got stripped out, and then defense contractors got allowed to run wild because they bought off our politicians. And so it's the exact same thing with oil industry. I mean, you can tell if they're doing that or not. The the real decision making here is just: Are you going to enforce what it, how it should be enforced? Are you or are you not going to do that? And so what I would say is, you know, we just need to have uh, the actuaries and the people in place to make sure that we can oversee that. It's not complicated. Like, it's, it's very simple. The complication comes in the industrial capture of the government because they're so big and they're so powerful. And uh, again, like when we talk about cost plus, that's exactly what we saw in, in the defense industry uh, that we didn't used to have. Yeah, I'm kind of a. I think maybe we should be nationalizing a bit of the oil. Personally, just, just grab it all. Well, not all Whoa. of it. Not all of it. But I definitely, I think if we nationalize some of it, then we'd have some competition. Robbie, the- I'm surprised you're not for that. <laughs> well, I think what we can do, and so if we take the money and we invest in the next generation of energy technology, and uh, and we put money into that, they're going to have competition. It's going to be competition from another another sort of type yeah. of energy, but that will create competition. Right now, they have no competition. I mean, there's an international oil cartel, and then these guys are basically the colonists of that energy cartel. cartel. And so what we're seeing is a situation where they can just do whatever they want. And what I want is free market economy with true competition so we can push the price down to, you know, what it should be. In a real free market, you don't give $38 billion in share buybacks every year. Like, that's Mm -hmm. monopoly rents they're collecting. And then that's redistribute. What, that's what I no, That's what I want too. Uh, but uh, we got to run. But Lucas, thank you so much for joining us, Lucas Kuntz. Hey, thanks, guys. Reporting from the New York Times lifts the lid on Hunter Biden's run-in with the IRS. The president's son paid. 
an over $1 million tax liability in the year after he initially disclosed an investigation into his, quote, tax affairs in late 2020. Despite the payment, though, a federal grand jury continues to collect evidence on the younger Biden's failure to pay taxes on time. And while paying back the liability does work in Biden's favor, it does not shield him from criminal charges. And that is according to tax experts um, for that the Times ended up speaking to. So yikes, he could end up. So that's like Al Capone stuff, right? Isn't that why he Hunter, went to? Hunter needed a money guy. He had other guys. So he needed a money guy. He had a lot of money coming in, what, 50000 a month from Burisma? Yeah. That's the problem with getting those just straight $50,000 a month checks. You have to put, uh, what, you know, your 20% aside for oh, tax no, you man for later. That, that kind you, of money. I mean, you know better from you, all the 1099 work you've done, yeah. right? Yeah, you'd have to set aside something that level, that much More money. More 20%. Yeah, oh, 50%. 40%. Yeah, I would say you set aside 50%. So what, what are the chances that Hunter Biden on his vendors, because we know that while he was doing his Burisma work, he was on some of these... Drugs, like legendary right? benders yeah. winding up on uh, Skid Row, etc. Yeah. Uh, what are the chances he was putting 50% of that away? Well, he, he wasn't. <laughs> Not great. Right. He wasn't. <laughs> so and so he ended up with right. this tax debt, but he Which did he took pay a loan off. out, according to Vogel's reporting. It, he took a loan out to pay this, this tax bill. Which this is, $1 million? Yeah. That's a loan? Yeah. Oh, yikes. Where's he going to get that money to pay off that debt now? Romania. No, he's sanctioned. He can't. Uh, he's going to be. Oh, yeah, he can't. can't. Can't get it from Russia. I mean, he still has access to clients around the world. Uh, his art. His art. He's going to have to sell a few paintings. Sell his art. That's right. Sell more art. I saw on Twitter, and I assume they're referring to the same story, but it might be a different New York Times story. Michael Isakoff of uh, Yahoo News tweeted a screenshot of the Times story. I think it's this story and saying, oh, I didn't in the category of didn't see this coming, the New York Times has confirmed the authenticity of the Hunter Biden emails derived from his laptop that were previously dismissed as Russian disinformation. Oh. The Times is finally confirming those? I, yeah, it's confirmed. They, I, I didn't know the Times had pretended that they didn't They were not those confirmed. Were confirmed. Right. <laughs> right. But this I, story uh, I, I responded with a gif of the Pokemon Slowpoke. Right. So, okay, <laughs> fine. Okay, thank you, New York Times. Uh, it's been clear for a very long time. It was clear from, like, yeah. day three. It, it was, <laughs> yes, it was clear even, pr- like, Prior to the election, it was clear. Yeah. Because no, it was clear on you could, They didn't refute it. <laughs> they, a, they didn't refute it, but you could, you know. And I spoke to some people uh, who were on the other end of emails who were like, "Yeah, okay, that's that is that is my email." Mm-hmm. Um, and you had you know Bobolinsky and others like saying like, "Yeah, I was. I'm, I'm on these emails. Here's my end of the email. These are not fabricated." So, yeah. But that's interesting that the Times is now. Yeah. Saying that, so now we're allowed to believe it. There you go, and talk about it freely without being censored. Right, right. <laughs> that's the way it goes. Another conspiracy theory that's not a conspiracy theory. Yeah, they went all out on that. You know, they they really did. Like New York Post wasn't allowed to tweet. Yeah, for a, lo- a while, wasn't it? You literally, like, it was the most egregious the example of tech censorship until what happened to us. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Right. <laughs> right. That's right. That's and then and then been, what happened to us just really topped just it. Just kidding. I'm just, yeah. No, it was a it was a bad. Bad call. Uh, I mean, it was so bad the platforms admitted it was a bad call, right? <laughs> they, right. Facebook and Twitter both said in, uh, in appearances before Congress that, yeah, they got that one wrong. That was a bad call. Uh, it was beyond a bad call because it ultimately, you know, that it is in a way, what do they, I mean, I hate, to, I'm trying to not say the word, but election interference in a way, right? So it is. It's well, that's bit, why they, yeah, that's why they had, you know, fallen on their sword yeah. over it because 
you know, do we know how it would have influenced people's votes? Like, is there, is there somebody who switched their votes? We, we, we genuinely don't know because it didn't Well, happen. but my, my suspicion is the way Twitter and Facebook tweeted that story actually made it made yes, people there's... more likely to read it. Uh, it was totally a Streisand effect scenario. I, like I, it, it, right. I think so, that then there were the hundreds of, of articles about how the truth was being hidden from <laughs> right, you. Right, right. And it, yes. like, they made it sound more, uh, uh, they made it sound even worse for Democrats right. because now the Democrats' allies in the media are actively working against you finding out about this. Right. Because what they had done so, in the past was just not covered at all. Right. Mm -hmm. And if they'd have done that, it would have gotten less coverage than if they had right. censored it. Right. It took it on this, this oh, yeah. the, you know, the bombshell that is being hidden from you, the, the you know, the, the one that totally changes everything. So. But the problem it, is, is that only conservatives really were paying attention to that. I, every liberal I spoke to said, no, that's fake news. That's not real. That's a conspiracy. That's Russian disinformation. But and I don't believe But that. if they hadn't, if they just, if they'd not Done, if they not censored it, I don't see how that would have been different. I think just fewer people would have right. known about it or been outraged about it. Right, because the people who are going to be persuaded that it's not real because big tech and the media is censoring it were never voting for Trump anyway. Right. Those are like loyal Democratic partisans at that point. It's similar to how James Comey, right before the election, did a press conference saying, we looked through all the emails yep. and we found nothing new. And all of the all of the analysis afterwards showed that that, that actually boosted Trump mm -hmm. because people were outraged, didn't believe it, it, it and it invigorated Trump supporters. And the, the Clinton supporters were like, well, we, we didn't, A, we didn't care about this. B, we didn't believe there was anything going on anyway. So it didn't do anything on that, but it actually boosted. So I, I could see a similar effect on this. Yeah. Well, tomorrow on Rising, I'll be speaking with General James Jones about the latest on Ukraine. And Brianna Joy Gray is here to break down Senator Manchin's takedown of President Biden's top Fed nominee. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so that you never miss a video. And if you're more of a podcast fan, then we're now available wherever you listen to podcasts. And this is it for me. I'm, We've I'm loved having <laughs> you in the studio, yes. Kim. You guys will be able to stretch out, though, get I'm your back space anytime. back. Yeah. Right. I won't. I will be on the, the screen. Just, just yeah, all we'll, still, we'll still be talking with you at yes, the normal yeah. time. You can still be It'll doing the radar. Go back to normal. I'm going yeah. back to L.A. and I'll be, you can I'll sleep be virtual. In. I'm, no, I, I wake up. 6 a.m. or whatever. Yeah, yeah it's the <laughs> same time for me to wake up here at 6 or wake up there at 6. But So that's it. So that's, that's why I'm not on the whole show when I'm in L.A. is because I'm not waking up at 3. <laughs> that is, I, I have to put a limit on that. I, woman needs her sl beauty sleep, right? <laughs> so do I. So does Robbie. Yes, so does Robbie. Yeah, 3 a.m. is on stage. But this has been a lot. It's been fun being here with you guys and finally meeting you in person. Yeah. Yeah, this has been great. We so. hung out. It was fun. We, we did a lot of Had a little out. too much fun. We've had a lot of fun. <laughs> We've all had a lot of fun. Uh, but yeah, this has been really great. So hopefully I'll see you guys again here in person at some mm -hmm. point. But I'm sure you guys are happy to get your, your space back because I'm, I'm like, of the yeah, I'm like, you know, kind of doing this. And we finally worked out exactly where everyone should sit and it was, it's worked. Right, it's yeah. Great. Moved me around a little bit, but, a little bit. but then when I ended up here. I just, <laughs> but I'm going to miss being able to do this. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. -bye.